The following episode of Rabbit Hole is brought to you by Han van Meegeren. Henricus Antonius van Meegeren was a Dutch painter and portraitist, considered one of the most ingenious art forgers of the 20th century. Van Meegeren became a national hero after World War II, when it was revealed that he had sold a forged painting to Reichsmarshal Hermann Göring during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. As a child, van Meegeren developed an enthusiasm for the paintings of the Dutch Golden Age, and set out to become an artist. Art critics, however, decried his work as tired and derivative, and Van Meegeren felt that they had destroyed his career. He decided to prove his talent by forging paintings by 17th century artists including Franz Hals, Pieter de Hooch, Gerard de Borch, and Johannes Vermeer. During World War II, Göring traded 137 paintings for one of Van Meegeren's fake Vermeers, and it became one of his most prized possessions. Following the war, Van Meegeren was arrested as officials believed that he had sold Dutch cultural property to the Nazis. Facing a possible death penalty, Van Meegeren confessed to the less serious crime of forgery. A Dutch opinion poll conducted in October 1947 placed Han Van Meegeren's popularity second in the nation, behind only the prime ministers. The Dutch people viewed Van Meegeren as a cunning trickster who had successfully fooled the Dutch art experts and, more importantly, Hermann Göring himself. In fact, according to a contemporary account, Göring was informed that his Vermeer was actually a forgery and, quote, Göring looked as if for the first time he had discovered there was evil in the world. If you'd like to join Han van Meegeren in supporting Rabbit Hole, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash rabbitholepodcast. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Rabbit Hole. The show is Rabbit Hole, where we dive down rabbit holes of different fights that divide people in interesting ways. The series is Is School Good? I believe we're on our ninth episode, Sparky, right? So far, exploring the question of what is school? What is education? Is it good? How should we design it into the future? And this is a very special episode because we have Dr. Kevin Matson here. Dr. Kevin Matson is a American historian, critic, and professor at Ohio University. Welcome, Kevin. Good to be here. So glad to have you here. The reason I want to bring you on is because listeners of Rabbit Hole will appreciate this. You wrote a book that is was not like a popular press book. It was, I believe, your PhD thesis, uh, yeah. Creating a yeah. Democratic Public. <laughs> this academic book written in the early 90s. It changed my life. And the reason I say rabbit hole listeners will appreciate this is we are always recommending people to not read the latest airport books that are on the front of the shelves, but to that the heart of the most interesting ideas, the things that will change your life the most are these books that are kind of lost deep in the shelves somewhere because someone put their heart into it, but it just wasn't at the right time in their career where it was a big hit yet. And creating a democratic public was that in my life. Um, I found it in a footnote of Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone because oh. there was some fact in Bowling Alone that I was really taken by. I think it was Tom Johnson's 
tent revival meetings. I go, where is this from? I look up the book, I read the book, and it is chock full of examples of concrete institutions that literally create a democratic public that make participatory democracy real tent meetings, university extensions, social centers. And one of them was called social centers, which was a repurposing of high schools as venues for American adult education, debate, deliberation, action coming together. And so I want to get into that. But before we do, and that's why I brought you on to talk about that, among other things. But before we do, I'd love to hear, how did you get into this question of creating a democratic public, and all of your books are somehow connected to American civic life, American political life. What drew you to this originally, Kevin? Well, um, when I was in high school, I helped start up an organization or maybe resuscitated an organization called um, the Student Union to Promote Awareness. And the organization was based upon this idea that um, high school students should educate one another outside of class time on key topics of the day. This was pretty much framed from a kind of leftist perspective. So we did that we confronted issues, this would be during the 1980s, confronted issues like Central American intervention, US intervention in Central America, the nuclear arms movement and, and, and calls for a nuclear freeze, uh, and a number of different issues, including homelessness, which was at its height in some ways in Washington, DC. And I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. So this group kind of wanted to nurture debate and discussion, again, outside of the classroom. It was always after school um, meetings that we had. That was, I think, the start of me identifying myself as something of an activist, as someone who was interested in democratic deliberation, trying to make get more people to the table of discussion about, about politics in the future. And so that pretty much was probably the, what inaugurated it for me. And I, I kind of stuck with it during the 1990s. First, I went to graduate school, but then my, my job after getting a PhD was working with a guy by the name of Ben Barber, Benjamin Barber, who was um, a key theorist of participatory democracy and worked at a place called the Walt Whitman Center for the Culture and Politics of Democracy from about 95 to about 2000. And um, that was a lot of commitment to different programs that, again, tried to enhance democratic, um, direct democratic participation um, and civic education. So it's always been something that I've been attracted to exactly as to why I'm not sure. It's also something that I've grown a little bit weary about more recently in terms of the possibilities of having a truly deliberative educational intelligent uh, discussion that started to kind of wane for me. Uh, and we can, you know, if you want, we can get into that. But that that's the kind of bio that that points to this kind of theme being central to my existence in high school on to, to, on to today. It was right from the beginning of being interested in, you know, how people come together to fight for this. I, it's amazing hearing this about, you know, it, you think of the 80s as this time of like no student you know, activism relative to the 60s and 70s and today. But, you know, to, to think that high school students were meeting up and talking about interventions in Central America, it really shows, <laughs> you know, things, things change. I don't even think we would get that today in high school. So it's kind of amazing to hear that story. So you end up writing this wonderful book. And why don't we jump right into and I do definitely want to get into kind of your skepticism of deliberative democracy today or how it could be practiced. But why don't we jump in since this is is school good? Let's jump into one of these examples in creating a democratic public, which is the social centers movement for our listeners who don't know about it. And I think probably everyone doesn't know about it. Could you tell us a bit about what the social centers movement was? 
Well, I grew out of, ironically, I grew out of a place called Rochester, New York, which is also where I went to graduate school. Um, and that was just a fluke. That, that wasn't anything where I, I thought, I, I didn't know that this movement was was up and running during the progressive era and uh, until later in my graduate um, studies. But it, it based itself in the, in the city of Rochester, New York. And the whole idea was to have after school meetings of just citizens who resided within the districts that they were very often sending their kids to school in. You know, it, it tried to get a mix of different uh, ethnicities, different class backgrounds of participants, try to mix people up, so to speak. It was dedicated to confronting key issues. Like, for instance, one of the things you could imagine would be like the initiative and referendum calls for having more direct democracy, calls for lessening the power of, of representatives to hold too much power and, and not not cede to citizens when necessary. And so it was really basically a series of meetings that kind of took off sort of like wildfire that was basically behind a lot of the broad, the, the things that we know from the progressive era as being forms of reform, being again, initiative and referendum, things along those lines, getting money out of politics, all those things. And it was trying to educate citizens so that they would be ready to make good informed political decisions. One person actually within the movement thought that they should hold a meeting before an election, right before an election, before people went in and, and, and you know, took down who they wanted to vote for. Because this idea would be that you would have a, a, be exposed to things that you hadn't thought of before when considering choosing a candidate. Um, and I think that's some, something that, of the things that stuck with me, that's something that kind of stuck with me. It's like, I think that we've become too impulsive and too kind of, you know, sort of, you know, set in our ways in terms of what we believe politically and to be challenged right before you're about to make a pretty momentous decision, I think is a, is a kind of powerful understanding of what democracy can be. The Social Movement Center was predominantly around the 1910s, um, and it then collapsed uh, in the in the face of World War One, when there was so much propaganda that was out there that um, I think in some ways they, the social centers tried to maintain a debate about U.S. entry into World War One and found that to be a, a rather difficult challenge. Totally, just before you go, Sparky, totally yeah, underreported, underappreciated aspect of American history that World War One basically like smothered out and perverted some of the most exciting energy that was growing in American history. And one example of this over to you, Sparky. Well, I was just going to ask, what is kind of the, you know, what was the institutional structure relationship between the social movement centers and the schools? Like, how did that actually work? I think, you know, one of our main themes is school as an institution as opposed to education. And I, I'm curious how, how that relationship happened. Basically, you know, uh, the superintendent of the system basically said, you know, as long as you don't try to meet during the period of time that students should be in class, we're fine for you using the schools as, and they you know, made the argument, well, you know, we, we pay taxes for these places. Um, they should in some small way belong to us. So it wasn't that difficult, I don't think, um, in terms of like seeing a, the way that like a, a school superintendent would say, so long as you're, you know, you're responsible, like for instance, you know, they would say things like, you got to clean up after yourselves. You got to, sure. you, know, you can't, you know, do damage to the insides. You, you know, whatever there were, there were kind of, I think, spoken uh, agreements as to that. But but for the most part, I think in some people's minds, it just extended. It was kind of like, OK, well, supposedly school is supposed to be for young people learning about the issues of the day or about about, ba you know, basics of education. But why stop that? Why, I mean, this is, I think, the basis of a lot of adult education, which is the idea of like, why should learning stop once you're out of school? 
Um, and so I think it, it made a lot of sense to people that the school would be the, a good place since it had been identified with discussion, deliberation, and dialogue amongst younger people. So I don't think it was that difficult of a case for, for the organizers to make. Yeah. And it, it reminds me, I think that was also an aspect of like the Francisco Ferrer, like modern schools to the sort of like a incorporating the adult education aspect into the school itself. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's exactly right. I, I mean, I don't, the difficulty in doing this type of history is that you don't know exactly what's going on within these discussions. Will never happen. I mean, they weren't recorded. You know, they there there are no transcripts. There are reports about what people remember from certain dialogues and debates that were you know seemingly grassroots. But you know, on the other hand, we have to be a little bit wary that you know these were also people who probably because they wanted it to work might be saying that it was working better than it really was. But I'm not that I'm not that that cynical. One of the reports that I remember someone writing about was listening to this washerwoman as the reporter called her, talking to a pretty wealthy person and just taking him down. Like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, money's invading politics, whatever it was that she brought up. She basically kind of trounced this guy in, in the realm of debate. And I think that's a, a kind of one of the things that it's not only the alternative education movement, but also this belief that we need to find places where money and income don't matter so much in terms of how we make judgments. And I think that's what the, the, the social science movement tried to do was to bring you know, people who were wealthy and powerful together with people who weren't wealthy and were not powerful and to try to challenge that, that notion by providing a kind of civic area or arena in which people were equal, even though economically and educationally probably not so. And trying to carve out that kind of space and feeling was I think central to the movement. Yeah, and could we just concretely, because it seems like such an abstract concept of, you know, we're just going to get together, there's this concrete aspect of in the schools after school, and then we're just going to start debating and having education and things like that. What is like the concrete aspect of how it took off? Was it like, it's happening in Rochester, and then someone in the town over is like, we should meet at the school and invite people? Like, how did they frame what they were doing? doing concretely at these places. Yeah, was it an organization formally or was it like just an emergent phenomena? There was something of an organization behind it spreading, but I would say that, you know, for the most part, it did just catch on. I mean, I never found it difficult to understand why. I mean, I've been involved in adult education when I was working at the Whitman Center that I mentioned recently. I took part in a lot of adult education projects. And I've always said adults are hungry for education. Kids at the age of like, you know, 17 to 21 aren't necessarily, they don't see the, the reason to be educated. Um, they don't see a connection to anything that, that strikes them as, as their own real existence. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that it caught on. I think that, that you know, having taught at these types of adult education venues, man, there, there are a lot of people out there who really want discussion. I think that's been damaged by the internet because people can obviously get access to what they want to hear really quickly nowadays and not have to haul their ass out to a, you know, a school or, or to a, a meeting place. But I think that there is a hunger for people who are uh, adults to, to, to continue with their education. Yeah, surely some difference in attitude between adults and kids has to do with uh, compulsory nature of education yeah, for kids, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and college is becoming more compulsory. Yeah. You know, I mean, even though it's not. 
And that's, I think, something that that really worries me. But that's and that's getting into the world of higher education, and that might be leaping ahead a little bit. But I always tell the story of a, a student that I had who was about 29 years old, at, where I teach at Ohio University, and he was about 29 years old, and he was like super Mister Engaged student in class. And I said to him, I said, like, what's what's the deal with you? You're very different from. He's like, look, I went to I went to OU when I was 18. I drank myself to death. I basically dropped out, was a total screw up. And then I started working jobs and I found that these jobs were boring the shit out of me. And all of a sudden I said, I'm 29 years old. I want to have an education. I don't think it's going to make me rich. I don't think it's going to, you know, but it's going to make me a better person. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. And I've always thought that we would be better off trying to put together programs at the higher education level that would be attracting people who were, say, in their late 20s or early 30s, as old as, as you want. Because I think, you know, again, some, in some cases, education is wasted on the young. Yeah, I mean, that's that's also kind of like a, it's almost like a backdoor way around the human capital drive. So I, I guess one additional question, because a couple of themes that seem to come up for us all the time here are sort of the relationship between, you know, pedagogy and hierarchy, I guess, if I can put it at its most abstract level, which is to say that, you know what you've described in certain in terms of the in terms of the centers sounds like kind of a, a you know combination democratic space but also something that had there was some kind of curriculum at some level or other right and so i guess just a little bit more concrete like how did that work? You said there was an organization sort of behind it, like who actually chose what the what the topics were? There would be themes that would be, you know, raised. It's impossible to completely figure out who exactly is sure. doing the organizing, because that's obviously something that we just don't have the kind of historical records that you'd want to have to, to make a judgment on that. But, um, you know, they would, the citizens from the reports that I read, citizens, you know, decided upon what they wanted to debate, and they debated and anybody could speak, you know, and there would be someone kind of, you know, watching out about people taking too long or, you know, violating other people's capacities to step up and speak. But, you know, again, as much as, I mean, a lot of the people would be saying this is what's happening. The difficulty was necessarily proving it inevitably. I, I, I guess in, in my own my own heart, I was I was asked this by someone, well, how do you know what they were actually talking about and all that sort of stuff? And it was actually at my dissertation defense. So how do you know that you know that they were saying the things that you're saying you're saying that they're reporting out? And I was like, well, I guess I'm not quite that cynical, right? I mean, right. I you know, it's I I believe that people actually did want to have a kind of democratic forum, and they saw their own responsibility in creating it. Can I say from that, that every discussion in the social centers movement was authentically democratic? No, but I, this is going to get me into something that you're probably not going to really want to get into, but there's, there's something here to, to keep in mind. I'm Generation X, and in the world of higher education, the baby boomers and the new left type of folks um, had left behind a kind of historiography that was deeply mistrustful in progressive reformers because they weren't, you know, authentic Marxists who, you know, wanted to overthrow the state. So, you know, in many ways, one of the things that I struggled with and a number of other, I think, historians about my age struggle with was trying to say, you know what, you've been too cynical in your treatments of, of ordinary citizens and what they can do. You're too cynical about the possibilities of progressive reform within the United States. Um, and so in, in some ways, the, the, what I was doing was kind of 
trying to also take what other historians my age were trying to do, reworking an understanding of the progressive era and not kind of like, you know, immediately descending into cynicism. Someone could say, well, that means you're not doing objective history. My retort to that usually is like, I don't really think there is objective history. Mm -hmm. To go down this burrow a tiny bit, I've also been, you know, as a popular reader of this, not an academic myself, but, you know, it's like they say, oh, you know, Jane Addams was actually you know, fighting for injustice. And I'm like, well, you know, the most famous woman in America was a socialist and, you know, trying her best to devote her whole life energy to, you know, end class structure. It's, you know, it's, it's the cynicism gets, you can be too cynical as well, that both things, optimism, and cynicism both can distort your sense of what's actually happening. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's funny because my advisor before he passed away in graduate school was a guy by the name of Christopher Lash, and one of he was one of the people who wrote that stuff about Jane Addams. He said she's just about social control, trying to tamp down conflicts in order to you know repress some sort of revolutionary thing. And I remember talking to him and just saying, you know, I just I just see this as ludicrous, you know. And he actually he both on Adams and on John Dewey, he who he kind of thought of as just a kind of technocrat who was tinkering about, you know, political change. He basically, I think, changed his mind. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, to, I'm the cause of that, but I think that in, in kind of rethinking it outside of the context of the 1960s and 70s, when I think they were first developing this idea, you know, I think that they saw that they could have, they probably got some stuff wrong as, as much as I'll admit that I'm sure I got stuff wrong. To go to one more example from the book before I want to leave enough time to talk about punk rock especially in the spirit of you being Gen X. One other example in the book is tent meetings and Tom Johnson and the tent meetings. I'll read a quote from this. Johnson's explanation of the significance of the tent meetings is worth quoting at length, you write. And here's Johnson's quote. In a tent, there is a freedom from restraint that is seldom present in halls. The audience seems to feel that it has been invited there for the purpose of finding out the position of various speakers. There is a greater freedom in asking questions too, and this heckling is the most valuable form of political education. That's the spirit of Tom Johnson's tent meeting. Could you explain kind of the facts of Tom Johnson's tent meetings? What drew you to include them too? Um, and why you saw this as connected to social centers and adult education and things like that. Yeah, I mean, Johnson came from a pretty privileged background, but one of the things that, you know, he was really committed to politically was municipal socialism. That is allowing, um, especially in places like Cleveland, um, allowing for uh, decisions to be made at the local level about the governance of public goods. So, you know, citizens having input about the sewer system, um, you know, that that the city would have. Um, And he saw tent meetings as a way to kind of galvanize that. I don't I don't think he was if you listen to that quote again, I don't think that you would say that this sounds deliberative. It sounds more like kind of raucous and like people shouting and getting worked up. Almost like I, when you started reading it, I was like, oh, he's going to say the, the tent is free from. And I thought what he was going to say was from a church. Right. Um, and, and he and he didn't. Um, but I think that, like, you know, there's this 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 idea that Mark Twain once said, I, I will do a public speaking gig at anywhere but a church, right? Because people can't laugh in a church. People can't do anything but like sit there and, and listen to what the minister's saying. And I think that Johnson had this idea about like kind of rolling up, roiling up 
ordinary people to defend policies that he was already against. But uh, this descends really from the, the, the actual really existing, as they call them, populists of the late 19th century, where farmers alliances would hold their meetings in tents and they would move them throughout the countryside. Um, and they, they were propelled in large part because it was a rural movement predominantly, um, whereas uh, Johnson was an urban movement by all means. I think that the Johnson, unlike the social centers people, saw it more as kind of mobilization, more as like people coming together and, you know, shouting down people for having foolish ideas or whatever, more raucous than I would think what the social centers wanted to acquire, which was, I think, more, you know, contemplative people listening to one another, having disagreement by all means, but not, you know, making it into something like that sometimes sounds a little bit like a circus, which is not to put down Tom Johnson, but I mean, he is is his own thing. Do you take anything from this idea when it comes to designing a school, when it comes to designing an educational system, this aspect of the venue, this aspect of how you structure it, you know, versus a lecture versus a discussion versus a raucous tent meeting. You know, Tom Johnson also said, I pulled another quote for this, which is, he said, the greatest benefit of the tent meeting, the one that cannot be measured is the educational influence on the people who compose the audience. And what I took away, you know, it's not as high quality, you know, mutual democracy, participatory democracy as like a peaceful deliberation. But one of the things that's interesting is that it values the audience coming along with the policy, because I feel like a technocratic neoliberal centrist would say something like, it doesn't really matter if the people come along with a policy. The goal is to get the perfect policy, implement it and serve the people. Like I often think about it as like in the of, by and for the people, they're very good at trying to think about for the people, which is better than, you know, fascist aristocracy that doesn't even want to serve the people. But, you know, it's it kind of turns down the democracy dial. And the fact that it valued, you know, that the people were engaged or that the people came away learning more. I, I don't know. Have you any thoughts on how that could go into the designing of a school or the designing of an educational system from looking at all these different ways of doing things? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I do. I don't know if you're familiar with the Gary, Indiana school experiments that were running alongside of the social centers movement. I mean, they're based they're based upon the concept of pragmatic education that, that comes from John Dewey. And the person who writes one of the best pieces about the Gary, Indiana schools was a guy by the name of Randolph Bourne, uh, who becomes a key critic of U.S. entry into World War I uh, and dies soon after making his critique. And he's in debate with John Dewey, who has decided to support the war. In any case, the Gary schools basically were, I forget the superintendent who ran the whole school system at this point in time. They were basically set up as self-governing institutions so that they would have, like the social centers did, have discussions amongst students in a collective space um, about what was what was wrong with the school. And for instance, as you can imagine, like some kids would say, well, the plumbing's all screwed up or paint's ripping off the wall, just something very basic like this. And the superintendent would say, okay, solve it. You, you guys do it. It's your school. You solve it. And in the process of doing that, they took over some ownership sensibilities, I think. You know, they were basically learning how to be a democratic institution. Um, in, in all sorts of ways. So I, that's running alongside the social centers movement. And I would say it's one example. There's, I don't think, a lot of examples, but one example of where pragmatic education and, and, and John Dewey's theory about, you know, instead of memorizing your math tables, you, you try to solve problems, that that should be the basis of how kids learn um, and that kids learn the best when they're taught that way. So that answer, but also the question, I think, both called 
back to mind the interview we did with with Derek Gottlieb, which was about sort of accountability and accountability measures within education. And I just like when you read that quote, it's like, oh, one little low key radical idea in there is that there's an educational outcome that can't be measured, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is, is basically just like totally against the orthodoxy now. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it, it, I think that the orthodox now would look at these things that that I tried to resuscitate and say, this is awful, right? I mean, this, 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 there's no measurement basis in this. There's no calculations of the minutes that someone said something. There's just a kind of qualitative treatment of it by people who are committed to democracy and think that the, that's ordinary citizens are, you know, getting close to approaching it. I can't stand the, the, the ways in which I see it in the higher education levels all the time, the ways that everybody needs something to quantify with this silly idea that that's going to make the judgment closer to reality than, than I think it will. So before we get into punk rock, I'd love to hear your looking back. So you wrote, am I getting this right, that you wrote this in 1994? Yeah, that's when I defended it as a dissertation. Wonderful. And um, and so now we're over 04, 14, we're like 26, 7, 8 years later. Looking back, you said you've changed a bit in your thinking on this, and you might have a little bit more skepticism on the the dream of deliberative democracy. What Lay it out there. What is What has changed? I wrote an essay for a place called Social Policy, I think it was, um, and it was entitled something along the lines of why I'm not a participatory Democrat anymore. And I think that um, a lot of this drew from my experience at the Whitman Center. Um, for instance, we did, a, we did, I think, a really interesting project where a graduate student and I observed these meetings between citizens and their representatives to, to try to enhance democratic participation. And we went to a, a meeting that Barney Frank basically met with citizens. And I remember just being like completely disillusioned because they were cowed. I mean, Frank just like dominated the argument, right? I mean, basically it became a lecture. There was very little discussion. The, the participants looked like kind of in awe and, and kind of meek and stuff like that. And it made me ask the question, do Americans really want deliberative democracy? Is that really what, what's high on their aims that they want to accomplish? And I increasingly, and I think, you know, I mean, especially, I don't think I need to spell it out too much because it's probably boring at this point in time, but, you know, watching the last president before Biden just, you know, run roughshod over anybody's belief that human beings have a capacity to make rational judgments and deliberate with one another in a serious and significant way. And I don't know if those people who are, you know, doing January 6th and stuff like that, do they want the deliberative democracy? I don't think so. I think they just want to kick ass, you know? And so it's like, I, I've become increasingly, and I think the internet also, uh, you know, in terms of how it silos a lot of people and it allows for people to talk to people that they already agree with a lot more than it exposes them to people with different agree, uh, different beliefs. I've grown a little bit weary of it. It doesn't mean that I don't think that experiments in participatory democracy should be called to a halt, but I think we need to be a little bit more attentive towards some of the shortcomings um, and some of the, the the problems that I think are, are pretty observant in, in the state of public deliberation in America today. Part of me wonders if the right metaphor, and I'd love to float this by you as an expert in kind of these concrete institutions, is the right metaphor is like development in that if you drop, you know, and I don't, I want to avoid all the like landmines of talking about this, like a simplified, the development of the mind, you know, you drop on a place that doesn't have roads or a stable government or, you know, uh, civil society or anything, you drop some modern hospital there 
and then you say, oh, the, the hospital fell to pieces. There were no doctors. You know, no one showed up. It, it didn't serve its purpose as a hospital. And alternatively, instead of dropping the hospital there, you slowly be like, okay, let's start with are there roads? Are there elementary schools? Are there ways to do water sanitation? You know, like the people thinking about kind of development and undeveloped places. And I feel like there's like a civic ecosystem development too, which is like you drop, oh, we're all going to get together and talk about the federal budget. And we haven't even thought about ourselves as citizens or we've, we don't even think about ourselves as a community together or, you know, we've been told by corporations, have it your way. You don't have to participate at all or, or Hollywood or whatever. And I wonder if it's just like a hundred year project of, okay, let's start with, can you figure out how to make your block work together or something? Or can we teach you the concept of being part of something bigger than yourself? Maybe that'll take 10 years to teach the country that. And over time we can build back. And that's what I kind of saw in your progressive era work was it was them slowly teaching you that. One other example is like labor union folks, you start with someone at a workplace they have no conception of their workers as fellow workers they're just the annoying person in accounting right now or my fellow barista that i hate or whatever and then by the end of the unionization process four years later they're like i know how to negotiate a contract i know how to organize people i'm a leader i'm a citizen of this cooperative coffee shop now that we took over and um everything changes about them i don't know do is that too idealistic what is what is your take on that no, I don't think that's too idealistic. I mean, I would say that what you're articulating is what most people call community organizing as an attempt to solve problems. And it's, you know, I was always, I remember being really drawn to Barack Obama when he started kind of taking off in the 2000s, because I could hear him basically making a pledge to his own background, which was, which was in community organizing. And he was very, you know, very much the believer of what you're talking about. You meet with citizens and you say, what's wrong in the neighborhood? Oh, uh, there's that traffic light that always goes out and kids are playing in the area and it's likely that someone's going to run over a kid. Okay, let's fix that traffic light. You know, now what's wrong? Well, you know, there's asbestos in the, in the school. Okay, let's go on TV and call for people to get rid of the asbestos from the school. And gradually, you know, it's the fancy term that a lot of political scientists use. It's called prefigurative politics. Gradually, people start to kind of change how they see themselves in that process. They do see themselves as part of the community, as part of a kind of self-governing entity, as something that can put, that can mount pressure upon politicians. I'm, I mean, Obama left it. And I don't, and I, you know, and, and, and I think that there's something telling about that. I mean, he basically said, I think I'd rather work on politics and I would at the grassroots community level. And to a large extent, I get it. I understand probably why he did that because it is a lot of friggin' work. Um, and it's, it's slow, agonizing work and working with people who are insecure, who don't feel politically engaged, as you pointed out, is not easy. And so, you know, I, I remember I was going to, after I was done at the Whitman Center, I was applying for a job what's called the Industrial uh, Areas Foundation. That's the group that Saul Linsky started. And that's a figure who's, I think, uh, important to know a little bit more about. But I was recruited by this organizer to consider taking a job there. And I remember he's like, come with me to, you know, this meeting that we're going to have. And I'll show you like what your work's going to look like. And he was like the smoothest, charismatic person that you could ever imagine. Not at all like me. And he just goes into this room and he just plays people. I mean, he's like, so what do you think is wrong, Bill? Well, I think that there's that traffic light. That's a problem. No, Bill, that's not right. Right. Remember what we talked about last time. It's this, you know, and he was just, I was like, 
this is not democratic, right? And it's people being suckered by people that they're kind of fearful of because they figure that they've got more education, they've got more relations with institutions of power. So, I mean, I think it's really difficult, but yeah, I think ideally community organizing is something that we should kind of stick with and is a model of something that can accomplish things. But I guess I wouldn't be too romantic about it. Tell me if this is if this is kind of a correct reading of of your point or where you were going, Pete. But like what I heard you saying was kind of like, you know, direct democracy takes practice, basically. And I probably have a lot less practice at it than my grandfather did by virtue of societal social changes in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. That strikes me as as not something that, you know, the bigger problem is approached by practicing democracy. And honestly, to me, it seems like something that we should be practicing to a much greater extent within schools, as some of the examples that you gave, particularly like from Gary, you know, it's like the school is not a place where you practice democracy. The school is a place where, you know, you sit under the watchful gaze of your of your betters. But I'm kind of curious at, at how this interacts, because what, what I partly hear you saying is you're saying, it's almost like I'm not sure that that this local level direct democratic action is a sufficient method of change, both because of people's abilities, but also because of structures abilities. And I kind of just wonder if like part of that is we're just really bad at it now. Like we just have no practice at it. So I, I guess what I'm asking is like, is it the case, like, is your skepticism such that like, I don't think that this can ever be sufficient or is it like, we're just nowhere near right now? Maybe both. From from my perspective, I, again, I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it. Um, I think people should try, and I think it's it's sad that that not many people have been trying recently. But but I I do think that you have to be realistic, like you said. I mean, there's, there's structures of power that just don't feel like they have any need to be tethered to the to the citizens at the local level. They just don't. And then you know, I mean, you, one thing to keep in mind is that I'm in the state of Ohio, and I we came here in 2001. And I have watched as this state has gone crazily to the right. And the question, of course, people ask um, is, why is that the case? And it's because we're frigging gerrymandered to death, right? And I've said to someone just the other day, I was like, you know, my son, who's 24 years old, he'll sometimes ask me, like, why, why should I vote? It's, 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 there's no point in it. And, and now I'm like, actually, you're right. I mean, in a gerrymandered state, your vote doesn't count. And they've found out ways of like closing you out or closing out your influence at the least. And if you look at the voter suppression stuff that's going on, I mean, more and more, it's like, it seems to be that people are actually trying to make it even less likely that people can have an impact at the local level. Those are the, the structures of power do not cede power um, to, to others. I mean, that's just, that doesn't, you know, I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr had that great quote, something like, you know, people who have power don't just hand it voluntarily over to other people. You know, that's just not how it happens. But what that means politically, I don't know. And I'm not sure if I want to go down that road. Because then you're talking about something like that you would have to say is much more revolutionary. And, and I'm, I'm not a believer in revolutions. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like there's kind of a two sides to this. There's the development of every individual with the civic muscles that you were talking about, Sparky. But then there's also the opening up of the structures that make interacting with them 
worth it, basically. You know, there's this great line from, I think it was Martin Luther King who said, you know, when everyone was talking in the early 60s about like the big, how society was getting too big, you know, Jane and Jacobs talking about the cities are getting too big. You know, you start searing this phrase, the system. And he has this phrase where he goes, it leaves the person outside. What he meant was basically like, if I have no role to play in co-creating this. You know, you know, it's easy in the 1840s when I'm in a pioneer town and, you know, there's 40 people in town and they tell me, where are we going to put the well? We all need all of your help to do it. Then when you're walking through a giant bureaucracy and they're saying, we have nothing to do with you except serve you or not serve you in many cases. <laughs> and, you know, you need the world to feel like when I do something to power, power, changes and you need the muscles too and you know you can get into a death spiral where the muscles start dying out and therefore the power gets more and more closed and we got to turn that around so i want to save time in these last few minutes for an interesting i would say democratically spirited civic spirited musical genre that actually is more than music um which is you wrote a book called we're not here to entertain punk rock, Ronald Reagan, and the real culture war of 1980s America. I'd love to hear first why you were drawn to that, but also on this theme of kind of what does punk rock teach us about civics? Because, you know, the famous thing, their do-it-yourself you know, style and tactics is very, uh, seems very democratically spirited. I'd love to hear all your thoughts on on that. And the yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy talking about all this stuff. Um, I, like I said earlier, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, and um, I participated in the DC punk scene um, of the early 80s. Um, so I was there, so to speak, um, not to sound pretentious about it. And uh, I, I always tell the story that um, I felt I learned a lot from my engagement in punk. I started an organization called Positive Force. It's somewhat related to the student union to promote awareness. And we would have weekly meetings discussing topics of the day uh, and things along those lines. Um, got involved in protests, got involved in civil disobedience, all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, punk really helped me understand that, like you were saying, that the DIY ethic is, 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 should be central to the way we make music, the way we make zines, the way we write books, the way we do paintings, the way we make flyers. And I saw that in action uh, in DC in the early 80s. And I watched as young people started to learn about things outside of the institutions of formal higher education. Or, or public education. Uh, and I, that really always grabbed me. And it, if, if, if I sound like I'm a pessimistic person, I am, but that act is something that I still kind of rejoice in. Uh, and they were very critical of, of the crap that the music industry was trying to you know, throw at them. Um, and, and, I, and I found that to be something of an attitude that I kind of took myself for pr probably the rest of my life. The funny part of the story is that I entered graduate school in 1990 one of my first conversations with my advisor who um, said to me, what do you want to write your dissertation about? And I said, I want to write a dissertation about punk rock as a new form of social criticism during the 1980s. And he was always this guy who would like be very quiet. And he was just like, let the silence kind of make you go, oh dear, what's going to happen? And he's like, I don't think that's a good idea. And I always thought at the moment, like, okay, is he telling me that it's a stupid idea and I should never con consider it? Or is he saying what I think is legitimate, which is you're too close to it. You know, you came out of the scene, you, you left the scene in 85, 1990 is not enough 
space, so to speak, in, in years and time um, for you to be able to get a good handle on what it is. You're still too tripped up by your own kind of ideas about what it should have been or people you didn't like. You're going to make them into people that seem horrible. You just need some more distance. And so it took me a while to decide um, that I wanted to write an entire book on it. But it, it, in, in some parts, in some ways, it was precisely because I felt like I was ready to, and that I felt that we still misremembered. I mean, punk in the eighties was, I mean, if you want to watch one of the classically bad movies that was made about punk, watch a movie called class of 1984, where the students like wear swastikas and beat up and rape their teachers. I mean, it's just, it's, it's blackboard jungle, like on super steroids. It was understood so poorly back then. And yet we take that poor understanding and we, we still use it today to understand, to understand the movement. So for me, in some ways, it was kind of a, not, hopefully not a romanticization, but a kind of defense of what punk kids wanted to do. Now back to the DIY thing and the, and the problems. One of the things is that, you know, I, I just did a symposium on the book and one critic said, you romanticize punk. And I said, I don't think that, I mean, I'll, I'll accept, you know, criticism, but I don't think that's entirely fair because one of the things I do in the book is show how difficult DIY was, that it wasn't just so easy. I mean, it, you, I, I always tell the story about like, you know, it's, it can't be easy that you, you get money to put on a show in a hall at a nonprofit rate um, and you don't have alcohol and all that sort of stuff and you're self-governing it. And then someone falls and gets hurt and you don't have insurance. And all of a sudden you learn the grief of what that means, right? You're, you're faced with legal power that you don't have any capacity to go push back against. So DIY though was, I think, both um, a good thing and in, to a large extent a necessity because the music industry was not gonna uh, produce, promote the, art, the artists that, that we were into. Um, but on the other hand, it's also a struggle and difficult and sometimes can become kind of horrible. So I think that, you know, we're back to this idea about, you know, Democracy, at least in some ways, is really good, but we have to pay closer attention to its challenges and, and problems. Just to ask, uh, you know, fun question to end this. Was this like the era, you know, I'm from Falls Church, Virginia. Huh. One thing I'm, I'm seeing is that positive force still exists to this day, which yeah, is kind of amazing. And there are these kind of legendary, you know, DC is known as being a very boring place. And one of the great prides of DC is that this started there. So this is the era, era of like Fugazi, Minor Threat, Bikini Kill, all of them. Yeah, more so Minor Threat than the than Bikini Kill and Riot Girl and uh, Fugazi, which is more like later 80s. I focus mostly on about 79 to 85, when I think that there's, there's I won't go into the details as to why, but there's, there's a kind of coherence that being a historian you like to have with those years as the kind of bookends. I love that you're applying kind of the rigors of, uh, what do they call it, periodization? Yeah. <laughs> to this yeah. thing that you all started as teens. <laughs> back to, you know, back to the progressive era debates. It's like, you know, when did they begin? When did they end? I always tell my students, it's like, you know, you don't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm living in the Gilded Age. Or, you know, I, <laughs> oh, I'm living in the progressive era. That's not, that's, these are impositions to kind of provide, hopefully, some order to, to a kind of messy chaos that's there. And I, that's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about history is that you're you're creatively telling stories but you're also you know you can't just make shit up right you've got to have some evidence you've got to have some proof um, of the points that you're making but on the other hand i think that you know history can still be you know storytelling which is which should be uh, hopefully engaging to people to a wider audience rather than just other you know people in the profession of american history 
you know, we like to end, we're coming up on the end here. Do you, do you have a vision of what you think school should be given all of this reflection on your own life and creating education outside of school, seeing higher education and seeing all these examples of alternate schools and alternate ways of using schools? Yeah, I should point out that my son was homeschooled and he was homeschooled because he's African-American and we knew he was going to catch a lot of shit uh, in a predominantly white um, setting that we live in, but also because um, he was quickly diagnosed with ADHD. And um, my wife was like, I don't want, I don't, I don't, I don't trust what they're going to do with his future with that. So um, we yanked him out of school. He had a kind of classic education um, homeschooling wise. Um, And I think that I'm not, I, I don't endorse homeschooling as a general practice. This, but I think there are certain cases in which it, it, it works best. I tell people that I'm so sick in a higher education education uh, higher education institution that I have to assign grades to people. It's mind-blowingly stupid. Um, and you know, and I think students understand that, right? You know, they get that it's kind of a silly exercise. Um, so I'm about what what some people call ungrading. Um, there's a whole movement in higher education level is trying to get kids to not pay attention to, oh, I'm scoring 94, that means a good thing. You know, but like, are you learning anything? Because I think that's, you know, testing gets in the way of people actually learning something, doing something with their knowledge in order to have an impact upon the world. That I'm, I'm, I don't believe in everything John Dewey said, but I do think his theories of education are, are sound. That is that you, you know, your best bet is to set up a set of problems for, for students to uh, collectively try to solve for themselves rather than giving rote memorization um, as, as the, for, in test. I'm against, um, standardized testing just in general. I've, I've, I've looked at a lot of graduate student applications and I've seen how generally, and undergraduates who are doing like honors tutorial programs that the university has. And I'll tell you, the reason that they're able to get honors tutorial is because they test better. Not because they're actually, you know, advanced in their thought and, and deserve a little bit more attention than the, than the ordinary student would, but because they test well. And usually because they came from a wealthy area. So, I mean, I, I think that this whole, quantification stuff that we've become obsessed with. I don't want to go so far as to say that I'm not into expertise and people learning things that that make them better professionals, but I'm also just sick and tired of how we've squashed everything down to a numerical judgment or an ABCD judgment. On that count, I'm extraordinarily pessimistic because I just, I see it going, continuing to go in the same direction, which is an attempt to quantify, um, an attempt to set, you know, objective outcome strategies and stuff like that. And I just don't see I don't see any pushback against that, or at least I ha- I haven't seen. It. I mean, you know, small experiments like like ungrading and stuff like that. But that's a, like a that's a slice of, of people who are teaching at college. But you know, generally, I would like to see something that's more open, deliberative. I'd like to see teachers feel that they can be provocateurs to their students and get them thinking about things in a different way. Um, I think that the recent stuff that you know uh, the Trumpites have been talking about in terms of we're go- we're going back to like book burning and stuff like that is just unbelievably frightening. But I think it, you know the, the 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 polar opposite of that is this kind of I think what you called be the you know technocratic sort of approach to things where everything's measurable, everything's quantifiable, and, and we look at things that way. I think we've got to move past that as to how to do that. I have no friggin' idea. I mean, one thing that came up in our discussion earlier that I guess I'm curious if if we're thinking about your ideal, you know, what you think school should look like as an institution or as a practice is the whole idea of, of the integration of adult learning 
into at least the building, if not the institution of school. And I wonder what kind of lessons you were able to take away about that. And if that's something you think, you know, in your ideal would be revived too. Adults brought into schools, you mean to, to assist in, in the educational process? I'm not sure if I'm getting you right. No, no. I, I mean, like in terms of the social center movement, oh. where, where, you know, you had, you had an, an, an adult educational and democratic practice that happened, you know, it was at the school, it was with the cooperation of the school, but I feel like we were kind of also talking about the, the way that we've built this institution that has cemented over time, these like particular aspects of being like, okay, no, this is where children go. And then this is where adults go and the children are age segregated and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if like some of those things, particularly through your research of the progressive movement, like if, if you would think that we need to break down some of those practices as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I've thought of them as much as perhaps I should have. Um, I think that kind of cross-generational learning is something that I think is, is healthy um, and good, but I don't, I, I, I guess it's just not something that I've thought about myself a, a lot. I think that, you know, the, the notion that there's this thing called education and it happens within institutions that you can, you know, paint a picture of, you know, the red brick building down the, down my street is our elementary school and education takes place there, but outside of that, you know, that there's no education. I mean, I think we need to think about ways in which we can kind of charge up education that happens outside formal institutions, because I think that makes us more deliberative, more thoughtful, more um, capable of self-governance uh, and things like that. So, I mean, I would say though that I, I don't, I don't, I can't say that I've written about this or thought about it to any great extent, but yeah, I think that's a part of it. Um, I, I certainly think that's a part of it. I, I, I'm reminded actually of one guy that I did for a while. I worked in a literacy program, an adult literacy program. I had this uh, guy who was basically working at Walmart in New Jersey and was getting screwed out of, of getting his health care. You had to work 38 hours a week and they'd, they'd always clock him in at like 37 and a half. I mean, it was just so grotesque in terms of how they were exploiting this gentleman. And, you know, I, I was, I was, you know, we, we had some really great kind of back to back, I mean, coming from very different backgrounds, some really, and he, him being significantly older, older than I was, we, I learned from him as much as he learned from me, as much as we learned from one another. I mean, the only sad story is that, you know, uh, he never got his health care at Walmart, even though he was hoping that by being a, by, by becoming literate, he could say to his workplace, you know, I'm becoming more of an effective person at the business. And he descended into heroin addiction. And, and as I understand it, perhaps even died because of a drug problem. But I mean, so I, the reason I bring that up is that I think that education needs to become more expansive. But I also think we shouldn't, we shouldn't dangerously think that education can solve all problems. Um, because I think we, we're a society that thinks that the way you fix things is you get more, you get people more education. I think that's starting to collapse with the ivory tower debates, right? Where people are like, wait, we're going into debt. We're not, we're not even getting any better monetarily after we graduate that I think people are starting to like think a little bit more critically about that. And, you know, from someone who, whose profession is, is, is teaching in, in that, in that setting, you know, I should be afraid of it, but I mean, to be honest, I, I think it's a healthy re-examination of what's the purpose of education. Um, is it just to make us into better consumers and have more income or is it to make us better citizens and capable of criticizing the institutions of power? I worry that we, we lose sight of that. Great note to end on. Thank you so much, Kevin Matson. Where can people find you online or uh, follow along in your work? Anything you want to plug? I'm, I'm happy 
getting emails from people and it's an easy email address. It's Matson, M-A-T-T-S-O-N at Ohio.edu. I can point people in the right directions. But if you Google me, I think some of my recent work comes up and, and people can check that out. Wonderful. Thank you for coming on Rabbit Hole and a great note to end on. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Rabbit Hole Podcast is produced by Dan Thorne. Theme music is by Danny Bradley. If you enjoyed this episode of Rabbit Hole, please, please support us at patreon.com slash rabbit hole podcast. Help us keep all of our episodes open to everyone. We can't do it without you. If you didn't enjoy this episode of Rabbit Hole, try another episode. Maybe we had an off day.